Father, may we, may we genuinely, truly, deeply believe what we have just sung. Lord, we, we may lose the whole world, but you will never lose us. So may you be our hope. May you sustain your hope by our hope by your grace. Make us people of great hope in life and death. All for the glory of Jesus. And may now you love your people through your word. Love your people through me as I preach it to them. For your glory, in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. You may be seated. And as you're seated, I would encourage you to open your copies of the Scriptures, please, to Mark chapter 3 this morning. Mark chapter 3 in your copies of God's Word. And as you're finding your way there, let me ask you a question. Are you ever shocked by God? Are you ever shocked by God? Not just by what He does, but by how he gets it done, how he pulls it off. I mean, we're talking about the God who once tore apart the Red Sea so that the Jews could escape Pharaoh in Egypt. We're talking about the God who once knocked down the walls of Jericho and stopped the sun in the sky for Joshua and shut the lion's mouths for Daniel. It's all so shocking, not just what our God can do, but how he's able to get it done. Because so much of the time, the God who is able to do all these wow things chooses to do those wow things through people. People like you and people like me. So let's read about that in Mark chapter 3, beginning in verse 13 through verse 19, because here we're going to be introduced to a group of guys, and we look at them, and we say, what in the world could God ever do with these guys? Well, we'll find out at the conclusion of our sermon this morning. Look at verse 13 of Mark chapter 3. Jesus went up on the mountain, and he called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James the son of Zebedee, and John the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, that is, sons of thunder, Andrew, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. This is the word of our God. Now, what can we learn from this text? What can we take away this morning from this text where Jesus is on the mountain, he's first praying, and then he calls these 12 men to be his apostles, this group that is not repeatable down through history. They are a unique group for a unique time and a unique place and a unique purpose. 
What can we learn? What can we take away from this? Well, I want to begin by answering that question this morning by pointing you to the screen. How many of you know what film this is from? All right? This is from It's a Wonderful Life. Now, when I was a kid, and this will tell you how old I am, but when I was a kid, this was not so much a Christmas movie. It was a, do you remember? Man, I must be really old. Nobody else remembers. It wasn't so much a Christmas movie. It was a Thanksgiving movie. This was on every Thanksgiving night on NBC. It's a Wonderful Life. Remember George Bailey? You remember? And by the way, please don't get your theology from this film. All right, because Clarence here, you see him in the picture. He's the angel, and his whole purpose in, in helping George Bailey is so that Clarence can get his what? Clarence can get his wings. But there is a point to this film. You remember what it was? It's really this. Relationships matter. People matter. And when you're surrounded by people in your life that God has brought into your life, that's a gift. It's often through people that God works in us. It's often through people that God gets his work on earth done. The same God who ripped apart the Red Sea and stopped the sun in the sky. Wow. And yet he does it through people. And that's why the big idea of this text right here in Mark 3 is that God accomplishes his eternal purposes using ordinary people in extraordinary ways. It's true in my life. God has shaped me and grown me and made made me more like Jesus using people like Eva and Georgia and Herschel and Peggy and John and Debbie. Now, to you, those are just names, but to me, those names represent the power of God because the same God who put his power on display at the Red Sea put that same power on display in my life through Sunday school teachers and youth group leaders in a little church in a little town in southern Missouri. And those are some of their names. My life is full of these kinds of people, camp counselors, college and seminary professors, my mom and dad, my wife and kids. And by the way, now for the last two and a half years, all of you too, God is using so many people in so many ways in my life. In fact, the way God got me here, the way God got me here to Bethel two and a half years ago was through a friend who without my knowledge gave my name to your search committee, and then called to ask me if that was okay. (laughs) Obviously, now, after God has revealed his will, it had to be okay. But here's the point. God is always using people in our lives every day. Even people we would never expect. Like a ragamuffin band of 12 ordinary guys who have no religious pedigree or political clout. As I said last week, these guys aren't on anybody's apostolic shortlist. They aren't somebody's, they're nobody's. They're normal, everyday guys, each with their own little quirks. So they're a lot like us. But when we look at this list, 
I want you to not just look at the names on this list, but look at the Savior behind this list. Because this isn't really about who these guys are. It's about who Jesus is and who they will then become through him and in him when his grace empowers them to get this, to turn the world upside down for Jesus as we read in Acts 17, verse 6. Wow. With this group of guys, and it all begins on the mountain where Jesus has retreated from the massive crowds that are coming to him for healing. His popularity is growing, but so, remember, is the opposition against Jesus. While the crowds are captivated by the power of Jesus, the, the Pharisees are furious with the theology of Jesus. And so they have begun collaborating with this group called the Herodians on how that they can kill and get rid of Jesus So for Jesus now, at this point in the Gospel of Mark, the cross is already beginning to to take shape. The prospect of Jesus' death is becoming more and more real now for Jesus. And that's why Jesus heads up the mountain. Luke tells us in his Gospel in Luke chapter 6, verse 12, that Jesus goes to the mountain not just to get away, but to pray. To spend all night talking to his heavenly Father. Now, wouldn't you love to know what Jesus said to his father on that mountain? Wouldn't you love to know what Jesus prayed on that mountain, the words he used? What did he ask his father for? But you know, Mark doesn't tell us, and Luke in his gospel doesn't tell us either, and I think there's something here important for us. Listen, listen carefully. That we pray, that we pray, is just as, if not more important, than what we say to our Father when we pray. Some of the most encouraging prayers I have ever heard prayed have come from brand new believers in Jesus who don't really know those Christian cliches that we tend to use when we pray. But the emphasis in the Bible isn't so much on the right words to say when we pray. The emphasis in the Bible is that it's always the right time to pray. So I say to you, Bethel Baptist Church, let's be a praying people, amen? It's, It's always the right time to pray. Because even though we don't know what Jesus is praying here, we do know where Jesus is praying. He's praying on the mountain. Now to us... That geographical location may seem incidental, but it isn't. Because let me ask you, in the Bible, does a lot of big-time stuff happen on mountains? Does a lot of big-time stuff happen on mountains? Yep. I'm just going to give you two of them from the Old Testament, way back at the beginning of the Old Testament, Genesis chapter 22. It's on a mountain that God provides a lamb for Abraham to sacrifice in place of his son Isaac. Genesis chapter, or excuse me, Exodus chapter 20. Moses receives the Ten Commandments from God on Mount Sinai. Those are monumental mountain moments. And so is this one in Mark 3. But it isn't just monumental for Jesus. It's a monumental moment for us as well. 
Because after praying all night, Jesus calls 12 men to be his apostles. Now, the word apostle literally means sent out one. And for these guys to be his apostles, notice they must come to him and then they must be with him. Before they can go out into the world for Jesus, they must spend time with Jesus, listening to him. Just being with him, learning from him, walking and talking with him. Listen carefully. Here's the application. Don't underestimate the power of time spent with Jesus. It's how this group of nobodies becomes somebodies in God's economy and kingdom. They spend time with Jesus. Don't underestimate the power of that time spent with Jesus because in the book of Acts, when some of these guys begin preaching and healing, do you know what grabs the world's attention? Listen to this. Listen to this from Acts chapter 4, verse 13. And when they saw, when the world saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were just normal, everyday, uneducated, common guys, they were astonished. And they were astonished because they recognized that these apostles had been with Jesus. It's being with Jesus that makes these guys who they are when they're sent out by Jesus as the apostles of Jesus. They are just simply 12 men. 12 ordinary men. So let me ask, have you ever wondered why 12? Why not 10? Any of you fans of the detective show Monk? Let me ask you, if Monk were picking apostles, what would his number be? 10. Wouldn't be 12. A 10's a nice, even, round number, right? Why not 7? I mean, seven, the number seven plays a really big role in the Bible, right? It's the number of completion, the number of perfection. I mean, why not three? Three is the number of the what? Three is the number of the Trinity. And by the way, just pragmatically speaking, wouldn't three be a lot easier than 12? I mean, I can tell you that from experience. Keeping track of three kids is a lot easier than keeping track of five. And remember, these guys in this list, they're always acting like kids. You know, there's a, in our family, there's a seven-year gap between numbers three and four, between Hannah, our third child, and Mary, our fourth child. Seven years. You know why there is a seven-year gap? Because I thought three was a good number. Joanna thought otherwise. And Joanna won. I was thinking, you know, all good things come in threes. It is the number of the Trinity, so as a pastor, you can't get any more spiritual than having three kids. But after that seven-year gap, God gave us two more, Mary and Amy, whom we love deeply. We wouldn't trade them for the world. But I can tell you that going from three kids to five kids is tough. It makes you feel old. Imagine pouring your life not into three apostles or seven apostles or ten apostles, but twelve apostles. So why twelve? Well, if you're a Jew, the number twelve has huge significance, right? 
Because how many tribes are there in Israel? There's 12. So in calling 12 apostles, Jesus is doing something important here and something symbolic here. He's appointing new spiritual leadership in Israel. Because the old spiritual leadership, the Pharisees, the scribes, the priesthood, it is all corrupt. And so through this new group of 12, Jesus is going to create a new family, a new people, a new humanity. Ephesians chapter 2 tells us that it's on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets that Jesus births a new family in which Jews and Gentiles now are brought together by the blood of Jesus to form the church of Jesus. And you know what that means? Look around this morning. Just look around right here in this room. This is the church. These are the people right here. What we have here at Bethel is so much bigger than what happens here on Sundays and Wednesdays. We are the church of Jesus Christ. This family, then, it is something extraordinary. It isn't a man-made thing. It is a God-made thing. So listen, what we have, listen, this church is not perfect. I thought maybe I'd get at least one amen there. (laughs) This church is not perfect. This church is not pastored by perfect pastors. Uh, Okay, thank you. Some of you are a little fearful to say amen there, but um, we are not perfect, but we are special. And we're not special because we're great or we're wonderful. We're special because Jesus is. And he is the one who is building his church, according to Matthew chapter 16. And when does he begin building his church? 2,000 years ago. And where does he begin building his church? Right here on this mountain. It is through the apostles that he is laying the foundation of the church when he calls to himself these men whom he desires. And when he calls them, notice, they come. They come. It wasn't that Jesus said, okay, listen guys, I'm calling out your names. And they're like, nope. Nope, we're not interested. Thank you very much, Jesus. You know, it's like the pest control guys. We've been hit by two of them at our front door just this week. So I opened my door just, just wide enough to not let our dog Ruby, like, take them apart. And, and I just look out the door and I say, they say, hi, I'm from the pets. I say, no, thank you. Listen, when Jesus calls, there are no no thank yous. Because notice here, when he calls these men, they come to him. Listen, when Jesus calls you, you will come. And that's a huge encouragement for every parent in this room and every grandparent in this room. Listen, as parents and grandparents, before our children are ever born and our grandchildren are ever born, we are praying for them to come to Jesus and to love Jesus and to follow Jesus. It's what we're doing right now with our grandson, Wesley. There is good news for you parents and grandparents right here in this passage on this mountain. Listen, when Jesus calls your kids and your grandkids, they will come to him. 
It's huge. It's John 6, verse 37, where Jesus says, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And so with confidence then, we say, listen, when we come to Jesus and when our kids come to Jesus and our grandkids come to Jesus, they will never be cast out. You know why? Because Jesus does the initiating. Jesus does the calling. Jesus does the choosing. That's huge. And Jesus does that with these 12 men. So let's talk about these 12 guys just for a few moments because they're rather interesting guys. I mean, can you imagine what this moment must have been like for them on this mountain? When with this swelling crowd of Jesus' followers, Jesus suddenly probably silences the crowd and says, your attention, please, I'm about to call out 12 men to be my sent out ones, to come be with me, to follow me, and then to go out to the world for me to take the good news to a broken world. Can you imagine this moment? Now, I know in Chicago these days, the happenings of the NFL, the National Football League, aren't a real big deal to us, right? I mean, the Bears... Uh, I just have to say that I can tell by your reaction. You couldn't care less. Did you know that just a few weeks ago, the NFL held their annual draft, right? Anybody pay attention to that? Okay, uh, three of you, okay? Um, And in that room where the draft was held were, were men who were thought to have a good chance to be chosen in the very first round. And as the camera would pan across the room, you could see those men waiting to be, to have their name called, to be drafted, and they were anxiously awaiting for that. But with the NFL draft, it's all about what you did in college. It's about your athletic ability. It's about your brute strength. It's about your quickness. But when Jesus drafts these men, on this mountain, when he calls out their name in the first round. It's not about them. It's not about their track record. It's not about their pedigree. It's not about their strength or their quickness. He's calling them not because of who they are or what they've done, He's calling them because of who he is and what he will do in them and then through them. This isn't so much then about these men. This is all about Jesus. And if you wonder how powerful he is and how how sufficient his grace is, then just look at this group of guys and see what they do. Do for the glory of God. And there is only one explanation, and that is that the grace of God is capable of taking ordinary people and doing extraordinary things for the extraordinary God. Do we believe that? That the same Jesus who calls these men on this mountain is the same Jesus who calls and equips us today. Listen, 
When you look at these guys in this list, you don't think, wow, what a great group of guys. I mean, they've proven themselves. Their, their theological prowess. Their... No, 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 no. You may have come in this morning into this room thinking, you know, I don't know why Jesus would ever want me. I don't know why he would ever choose me. I don't know why he would ever call me. Because I don't have a good track record. I've made a mess of my life. I've messed it up horribly. I don't have much to offer Jesus. Listen, listen carefully. If that's you, I want you to know you're sitting in a room full of people who fit that description to a T. That's all of us. Because that's what grace is and that's what grace does. It shows favor not to the strong and the powerful and the proven. It shows favor to the unworthy and the undeserving and that's all of us. But you know that's not just all of us. That's all of these 12 guys. I mean, can you imagine these 12 within that growing and swelling crowd of Jesus followers waiting and wondering if their name would be called? And the first name on the list is a name, the name of a guy we're very familiar with, right? I mean, I can just imagine Simon Peter, the eternal optimist. And we know that he tends to really overestimate himself, right? And Jesus calls out his name and Peter's like, awesome, I can do this, Jesus, so thank you, Jesus. I'll be the guy you can always count on. I'll never let you down, right? Now, doesn't that sound like Peter? I'm your guy. I'm your man. And we know Peter's story, right? We know how later he will deny even knowing Jesus. And then there's Thomas. Thomas, he's kind of the anti-Peter, the un-Peter. He's not confident about much at all, right? We know Thomas as what? As doubting Thomas. And so there he stands and his name is called and he's like, "Um, did Jesus just call my name? Because I'm not really sure about any of this. I doubt this is going to end real well. But still Thomas came. And so did James and John. The brothers who were fishermen. But notice we learn something about them here. Not just their fishing capabilities. But we notice and learn something about their personalities. Notice they're hotheads. They're guys who fly off the handle. They lose their temper. That's why Jesus nicknames them sons of thunder. They're passionate guys who sometimes get their gut into stuff. But what's crazy about the grace of Jesus is that Jesus takes this out-of-control passion of John and tames it and molds it and shapes it into, into a passionate love for Jesus and his people. Because you know what we learn about John later on? We learn that he is now called the apostle not of a hot temper. He's called the apostle of love. Wow. And then there's Simon the Zealot. Now, Zealot doesn't mean that Simon is a self-starter or a go-getter. It means that he's a member of the Zealots. And the Zealots are a right-wing Jewish political party that hates the fact that Rome is occupying Israel. Free us from Rome. Free us from Rome. Free us from Rome. That's their mantra. 
And then Jesus calls out the name Matthew. He's the tax collector who has worked for Rome. He's the guy we met back in chapter 2, the guy whose Hebrew name is Levi. He's been loyal to Rome. And so you've got a zealot who hates Rome and a guy who's been loyal to Rome. And if we were there on that mountain with Jesus, we would say, whoa, 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 hold on, Jesus, time out. Um, Jesus, um, it's time for a redo. I don't think you understand what you're doing here. Uh, Simon the Zealot and Matthew the tax collector, uh, that's that's not capiche. That's not going to work. This is not going to go well, Jesus. Let's try this one more time. But no, Jesus knows what he's doing. He's showing us that God's kingdom isn't built around a shared political agenda. It's built on Christ. It's built on the gospel. And so please, please listen carefully, especially with the midterm elections coming up. Here at Bethel, we are not about a political party or even a political platform. We are all about and only about the gospel of Jesus Christ. Only the life-changing grace of Jesus can bring together a zealot and a tax collector. And then finally, notice, there's Andrew, Peter's brother. And then there's Philip and Bartholomew and James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus. Now, parents, parents, please, listen carefully here. Please don't name your son Thaddeus. You know why? You know what his name means? Mama's boy. How would you like to carry that name with you into adulthood? Perhaps that's why he also has another name. His other name is Judas. But that's a problem too. Because the final guy Jesus calls as an apostle is also named Judas. Judas Iscariot who betrays Jesus. That's his legacy. He's the traitor. The betrayer. The one who sells Jesus out for 30 pieces of silver. And here's the kicker. Please listen carefully. Listen, you you wonder how good Jesus is? How loving Jesus is? How merciful Jesus is? Here's the kicker. Jesus knows on this mountain when he calls Judas Iscariot what Judas Iscariot will do. Still he chooses him. Come and be with me. Come and listen to me. Come and walk with me. Judas, let's be together. You know, there is something here for us. Would you please, please listen here? Because we learn from Judas that it's possible to look the part of a follower of Jesus. It's possible to hang out with the people of Jesus who follow Jesus and love Jesus and worship Jesus. It's possible to do all those things and to be in close proximity to Jesus and still be so far away from Jesus. So can I ask, how about you? Do you really belong to Jesus? Are you really with Jesus? 
Is he really your Lord and Savior and King? What is it that you're trusting in for your salvation? Is it that you're doing the right things because Judas did? Is it that you say the right things because Judas did? Is it that you hang with the right people because Judas did and Judas goes to hell? Having done all the right things and said all the right things and hung out with the right people. And Judas goes to hell. Having been with Jesus. How about you? How about you? What will keep you out of hell? The Bible says in John 3 verse 16. That God so loves the world that he gives his only begotten son. That whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Ephesians 2 verses 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves. It is a gift from God. It is not of works. Lest anyone should boast. You see Judas did all the right stuff. Said all the right stuff. Hung out with all the right people. And after hanging himself he awoke in hell. Why will you be in heaven? Will it be because your mantra, your plea, your statement of faith will be Jesus and Jesus alone? By grace, through faith, in Him alone. Are you trusting in Christ? Do you believe he lived the perfect life you couldn't and died the sacrificial substitutionary death that you deserved for your sins? And you're placing your confidence not in anything about you or what family you're a part of or anything you've done or how much you've given or how often you pray. But it's always and only in Jesus and in Jesus alone. Would you trust him? Because the Bible says, if you will believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be saved. If you will confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. It's by grace alone. And Judas shows us that. And when you, if you right now this morning have not come to Jesus, but you will come to Jesus by faith right where you are, and you enter into relationship with Jesus, then then you get to know that extraordinary way that grace goes uh, to work in ordinary lives. That extraordinary grace. Because we learn from this text, here are the two takeaways as as we leave this morning. Number one, Jesus knows everything about us when he calls us. Jesus knows everything about us when he calls us. He knows us each by name, just like he knows each of these guys by name. He knows our backstories, our propensities, our shortcomings, our failures. And for some of us, that's what we need to hear this morning. For some of us, we think that our past sin defines our present and shapes our future. We've blown it. We've messed up. And we carry the scars to prove it. Listen, I say to you this morning, Jesus' scars are enough to overcome our scars. The grace of Jesus is greater than our sins. That's Romans 5 verse 20. Where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. You want proof of that? 
Here are the names of 11 guys before you this morning. We don't know their pasts, but we do know what's coming in their future. Because when Jesus is arrested, all of them will flee. All of them will abandon Christ. And Peter again will deny even knowing Christ. Jesus knows all of this when he calls them. But it's his love for them that will endure when there's falters. It's His grace that will pick them up each and every time they fall. He, Jesus, will get the good news of salvation to a broken world through these broken men. The message of grace will go out to the world through these trophies of grace. So as a follower of Jesus, your past sins don't define you. Grace does. You haven't been shelved by Jesus. You've been called by Jesus. Because secondly, this morning, the takeaway is that Jesus doesn't, Jesus doesn't call the equipped. He equips the called. That's why Pastor Dave read earlier this morning 1 Corinthians 1, verses 26 and 27. And let me reread it at this point. Consider your calling. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to confound the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. That's these men in this list on this mountain. They lack real world experience. They're theological novices. They're rough around the edges. But listen, friends, that's the point. They aren't called because they're qualified. They're qualified because they're called. And the same is true for us. So the real question isn't so much about our ability, but our availability. Are we willing to be used by Jesus in pointing others to him? In our neighborhoods, our workplaces, our homes, even our church? And young people, teens, can I have your attention for a moment? Because there's something here for you. Most uh, most Bible scholars believe that uh, many of these 12 guys were in their late teens when Jesus calls them on this mountain. So don't think that just because you're young, God can't use you. He can. He will. Listen, God's power is not limited by your age or your lack of experience. You want proof of that? God once used a shepherd boy named David to take out a giant named Goliath. God once used a young woman named Esther to save the entire Jewish race. Charles Spurgeon The 19th century Baptist preacher began pastoring his first church when, get this, he was 18. You say that doesn't happen anymore. Uh, Yes, it does. I listened to the podcast of a man who is now pastoring in Florida who began pastoring his first church in California at 18. Now, let me just make this clear. I'm not looking for one of you young bucks out there in the audience to take my place as lead pastor. I'm just saying, young people, don't waste your life while you're waiting to grow up. God can and He will use you right here, right now. And so I say to our church, 
Let's do what Jesus does here. Let's encourage our young people to be with us and learn from us and to serve Jesus right alongside of us while they're still young. Because look at what God accomplishes through 11 of these young men. You say, well, the text doesn't tell us what God accomplishes. Okay. Just take a look around this room. Look. There are people here this morning from all over the globe. That's one of the many reasons I love this place. People from all over the globe here this morning. People who know Jesus and love Jesus and are following Jesus. And listen, each of us can trace our faith in Jesus back to these 11 men. Young men who counted the cost of being with Jesus and following Jesus and then telling the world about Jesus. Do you see what God can do? The extraordinary God of extraordinary grace can do through 12, excuse me, 11 ordinary guys. What could God do through us? A group this size. If we are willing to be a church of ordinary men and ordinary women who are used by an extraordinary God in extraordinary ways to accomplish His eternal purposes, what could God do? So Bethel, let's be... Let's be just that. Let's be people of grace, transformed by grace, to share the message of grace. Because as 2 Corinthians 12 verse 9 says, My grace is sufficient for you. My strength is made perfect in your weakness. It's the all-powerful grace of God that enables ordinary people to do extraordinary things for the eternal glory of God. Bethel, let's be that people, people of His amazing grace for His eternal glory. Amen. Father, take Your words and plant them deep within us. Shape and fashion us for your glory, by your grace. Can I ask you this morning, just between you and God, are you a genuine follower of Jesus? Or have you been playing the part, looking the role? You fit in so well, but you know down deep inside your heart that you aren't trusting in Jesus alone for salvation. You're trusting in who you are and what you've done. Would you forsake that this morning and would you embrace Jesus Christ by by faith alone? Come to him right now. Call out and he will save you. Call out in faith. And Christian, you see what God can do by his grace through you? Are you willing Even though you feel under-equipped, He calls you. He'll equip you. He'll give you what you need. Will you point others to Jesus wherever you are, whomever you're with? It's His grace. That's enough. Thank you.
God. In Jesus' name, amen.